We're starting a new parak. Daf Savach Vav. It's also uh, it's a great schloss. Chassam Sefer says whenever you're learning a topic in the Gemara or something that comes up when it's based off a pasuk in this week's parsha. So this is a great example. Parsha's Emar, which discusses a lot of things, but amongst them the laws of truma, and uh, talks about who has the right to eat truma. So if you want to take a look at the pasuk in the Shadik Gemara, this is the pasuk that everything is based on. It says in the pasuk, "For Kohen Kiyekner Nefesh Kinyan Kaspo," when a Kohen will acquire a soul. The Kinyin Kaspo, the Kinyin Kaspo, the acquisition of money. So who Yolchabal, he's able to eat the Trima. So meaning when a Kohen buys a slave, the slave is allowed to eat Trima. That's the idea. A Kohen, not only could he eat Trima, but his slaves can also eat Trima. And we're going to see in the Gemara that we expound this as well to a wife. A wife is also included in Kinyin Kaspo. In other words, when a Kohen has a wife, so what happens? A Kohen has a wife, and then she's also included in that category. He paid money to be married to her. So even though the wife is not a Kohen, but she's allowed to eat Truma as well. There's another law that a Kohen can feed his, his daughters, his family, whoever is living, you know, his children, Truma. And a daughter, however, when she grows up and she moves out of the house and she marries Yisrael, she can't eat Truma. But if there's no children, and if she doesn't have children from the marriage and the marriage ends, then she could go back to her father's house and eat Truma. So that's the basic ideas that we have to know going into the parak. So now the Mishnah throws you, throws you right away into a complicated case. What happens if it's Almanu Kohen Gadol? Yes, it's true that they're, they're, it's a marriage to a Kohen, but it's a forbidden marriage. It's a widow marrying a Kohen Gadol. A divorce of a Chalutz marrying a regular Kohen, that shouldn't be done. So, but the saw since the marriage is not karis, it's not such a bad iser. So it's tofes, but the they are legally married. They are considered married. So there is a marriage to a Kohen. It shouldn't be done. And the woman in this scenario is not going to be allowed to eat Shruma because what's going to happen is that when she's going to have relations with the Kohen God, with the Kohen God, let's say the widow has relations, she's going to become what's called the Chalala, which somebody disqualified for a bidding Kuna relationship. And then you can't eat Shruma. So she herself personally is not going to be allowed to eat Shruma. Okay, that's good. But what's complicated? What's complicated here is that she has all sorts of slaves. That, you, that are here in the relationship. So ordinarily, slaves in the relationship would be allowed to eat truma. His slaves can eat truma, they're his Kenya Cosmo. Even her slaves, usually when a wife is eating truma, her slaves can eat truma as well, because we're gonna see the Gemara will even expound upon that. But here it's complicated because she can't eat. Only he is the Kohen. She is really becoming a halala through having relations with him, this widow bearing a Kohen Gadol. So if she has slaves that she brings into a relationship, could they eat truma? So a little bit further complexity. When a woman brings in assets to a marriage, there are two types of uh, there are two types of monetary assessment that can be made. There's something called avde milug, and there's something called avde tzon barzel. Let's just explain what that means, okay? So when a woman assesses something, so the husband can accept them as part of the ksuba. We assess how much they're worth, and at the time the marriage would end, he'll pay back that exact value, regardless of how much the property is worth now. If it went up, it went up. It went down, it went down. The the the, the husband is is like is accepting the responsibility, ironclad, like sheep, usually sheep. The reason we always speak in sheep, so in Barzal, is because usually when you give sheep to a shepherd, you, you assess the value before you give them over. So there's called the, the ironclad sheep is the way of saying the assets that the woman gives to the property and gives to her husband, and then the husband is responsible for that exact value to pay back at the time of the ksuba. That's one type of thing. So even though technically it's the woman's asset, but the husband like really kind of gets control over it because whatever go the appreciation or depreciation is to him. He just has to pay back the principal and the value. Then there's a different type of thing. There's malog. Malog is something where the, the asset really is the wife and the husband just has the right to use it, but, 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 but all the wear and tear... All the wear and tear is on the uh, is on is, is is going to be go to the woman. So any depreciation of the value, the husband's not accepting uh, to pay back. 
So there are two different types of slaves that you might bring in. So the Mishnah says, Assuming she brought in Malug slaves and Son Barzo slaves. Again, what in the world does that mean? That means that certain types of slaves were brought in and assessed in their value and placed into the Ksuba where the husband accepted complete responsibility to them to pay back afterwards. What, and he's going to use them, but whatever happens is going to happen. He's going to pay back the value that they were worth at the time of the marriage. And he also brought in Avdi Malug, which means that she brings in slaves and the husband's going to use them. He has the right to use them, but he's not accepting too much responsibility for them. So what's the, the concept here? The concept is, is that who's, whose asset is it? If it's Avdi Malug, it's really the wife's asset. Just the husband has the right to use it. If it's Avdi Ton Barzel, then it's really the husband's asset. That's the concept. So therefore, Avdi Malug, which are the wife's asset, Lo Yochlo Truma. They can't eat Truma. Why? Because the wife's not eating Truma. In this forbidden relationship, where she's becoming a Chalala and she's disqualified from eating Truma, so she's not eating. She's not eating. Her slaves can't eat. Whereas Avdi Ton Barzel, the ones which are, are assessed and this is what they are and they go to the Kohen and that's what it is. So the Avdi Ton Barzel, they could eat Truma. Because those are really considered to be like the husbands. It's the husband's assets. So since the husband is a coin, so the slaves can eat. And now the Mishnah defines the status. These are the In if they die, let's say some horrible thing happens and the slave dies, Mesu law. The death is her loss. The husband doesn't have to pay back. In if they increase in value in the marriage, Rosiru law, the increase goes to her. And even though, an interesting law, the husband, because he's using that, he does have to feed them. In other words, once he has to feed his wife, he has to feed her slaves as well. That's true. But the bottom line is, it's her asset. It's her asset that he has a right to use. So he could put them to work, these slaves. And that's what's fascinating about Avdi Maluk. The asset is the wife, but with the husband's right of usage. So he feeds them, but whose is it? The money belongs, the, the slave itself and belonging is the wife's and therefore they can't eat Dachruma because they're not considered the coin's property. They're not the coin's Kenyan Kaspa. They're the wife's Kenyan Kaspa and the wife's not eating Truma in this case where she's disqualified because the relationship is forbidden. Where in contrast, these are the rules for the Tzon Barzo slaves in Mesu Mesu Lo. If they would die in the course of the marriage, so the death would be his, meaning the husband accepted it as part of the value of the Ksuba that he now is like, Accepting the responsibility to always pay back that asset. So if they would die, he's going to have to pay later. Or most zero, if they increase in value, zero low, they would increase in value. It would be it would go to him. So once he's completely responsible for this value, then they could eat truma. They're considered to be his Kenyan Kazbo. Now the Mishnah continues. Now we continue just for more of the basic laws. You almost would have wished that this would have been the first thing. We learned already something so complicated. This is just more of the simple law. A regular basis for all, a regular kosher girl, she's not a coin. She needs a coin. She marries a coin. The law of Adam, and not only is she marrying coin, she also brings in slaves as part of her dowry into the marriage. Whether they're, they're brought in and, and, and they, as, a, as a malug asset or as its own barzal asset, they can eat truma. Why? Because she's going to eat truma. This is a kosher relationship. So normally what's going to happen, she has the right to eat truma. Her slaves eat truma because she's eating truma, and the slaves of uh, that she's making this the husband's asset. They're going to eat truma because he's eating truma. What about the inverse? Bas Kohen, Shinisis Israel, a daughter of a Kohen who's marrying a regular Jew. So what happened? What's happening now? She had the right to eat as part of her father's house. She marries a non-Kohen. She loses that right. Again, a Bas Kohen who marries a regular Israel does not eat. And she bring in she brings in her slaves to the relationship as part of her dowry here. Bain whether the Maluk or they cannot eat. Because here the husband's not a Kohen. 
And she, the Basco, and is losing her right to eat by marrying. So whoever slaves they are, whether it's the wives or the husbands, they're not going to eat Trima. So big picture here. We have an idea that there's two types of slaves. One is Malug, where it's primarily the woman's asset. One is where it's on Barzil and it's viewed halakhically as the husband's asset. And uh, whenever a person eats Trima, then they feed their slave. That's more or less the concept that we see in the Mishnah. So now, what did we learn? We learned in the, in the Reisha that when the widow was married to the Kohen Gadol, they don't, the slaves of the, the Avim Balog don't eat. And the reason they don't eat is because the wife's not eating, right? That was the Reisha of the Mishnah. Amar of the Kohen Gadol, even though the, he's a kosher Kohen Gadol, the Avdi's own Barzal will eat, but the Avdi Balog are not going to eat. Why? Because the woman's not going to be eating. Says the Gemara, why not? Even in this case, if the widow's maluk slaves not eat truma, why is that true? What's the pshat? Why isn't it just like the Kohen's Kenyan who made a Kenyan? Meaning the Pasuk said, the Kohen's Kenyan Kaspo eats. So in this case, that's, that would include the wife. That's the Kenyan Kaspo of the Kohen. It's a Kenyan that made a Kenyan. Isn't the law that a Kenyan that made a Kenyan, an acquisition of the Kohen that made a second acquisition, that second acquisition is entitled to eat truma? The Tanya is a says in rice. Now we take a step back to the whole law. How do we know the whole thing? How do you know if a Kohen marries a non-Kohanist a non, uh, or if a Kohen purchases the slaves that the woman and the slave can eat Shema? How do you know the whole concept? If a Kohen has Kenyan Kaspo, has, they can eat Shema. And what's Kenyan Kaspo again? Either a slave, a monetary acquisition, like you own the slave, it's like an asset, or a wife, where even though it's not posh, it's not an asset, but it's Kenyan Kaspo, Rashi and Subas famously says, because it was acquired through money. You gave money, it's Kenyan Kaspi. It's, it's an acquisition in the sense that it came to be in the relationship through money. That's Kenyan Avish. And it's very interesting, Kenyan Kaspo has two definitions, a slave and a wife. Both are included in the general term. Fine. But how do I know? What if the Cohen's wife purchased a slave? Or a Cohen's slave purchased a slave? How do you ever have a slave buying a slave? Isn't everything that a slave owns automatically his master? The terrorist is, what if somebody else gave a gift to the slave on condition that the master would have no rights to it? That actually, according to the, the many Tanam, is binding and only the, it's only the slave's money. So if the slave used that money to buy himself a slave, so it's not the master's slave, it's only the slave's slave. So here, if the wife bought a slave, or if the... Or if this slave purchases his own slave, how do I know that those slaves can eat truma? It's a step removed. It's not the Kohen's Kenyan. It's the Kenyan's Kenyan. So how do I know they eat? There's an extra word here. The Nefesh. Even where it's the Kohen's property, acquires other property, right? The wife bought a slave or the slave bought a slave. They can also eat. So what do I see here? So what's the Kasha? Let's get this clear. We learned in our Mishnah that where the relationship is forbidden, and the Almana, the Kohen Gadol, she is not going to eat, so then her asset, the Avdi Malug, is not going to eat. What's the Gemara's question? The Gemara doesn't understand why that's different from the general law that when the wife of a Kohen eats, her slaves also eat. Kenyan, Yakshakana Kenyan eats. What's the Gemara's question? And it's almost hard to understand. There's such an obvious difference. Normally, when the wife is eating, so her slaves can eat as well. But here, the whole part is that she's not eating. She's the halala. She's disqualified. So she's disqualified, so then her slaves can't eat. It's so hard to understand what the Gemara's question. So it's very clear what the lumdis is. We have to explain like this. The Gemara thinks that what's the lumdis of Kenyan Shekhan and Kenyan? What's the din that when the acquisition of a coin acquires a coin, they eat? And let's bring out the point. A slave of a coin is like upgraded status. He's a Kayin. His, his Kenyan, his Kenyan Kaspo has a right to eat of Adonat. It can't come from the slave. The vart is that the sec, the slave that bought the slave, it's eating Mikayach the Kayin. 
The Kayin, the same way he could feed his slave, the Kohen can feed his slave's slave. It's not the part the slave is giving the rights to his slave to eat. That's not what's taking place in the Lamdas. What's taking place is if a slave bought a slave, the same way the Kohen has a right to feed the slave, the Kohen can feed the slave's slave. So, Frek the Gemara, if a Kohen marries a woman that's forbidden to him and she has slaves, why do I care that she can't eat because she's disqualified? But if the marriage was valid, it's toface, meaning even though it's forbidden, but there's a, there, the Mice that they are married. So it's Kinyanavi, Kinyano Shakana Kenyan. So the Kohen should feed his wife's slaves. That's the Gemara's question. So the Gemara answers, no, let me tell you a rule. Let me tell you a general rule. Let me tell you a rule. Whoever eats truma themselves can entitle somebody else to eat truma. If you can't eat truma yourself, you can't entitle somebody else to eat truma. So meaning to say, the Maisa, this widow can't eat truma, so she can't entitle her slaves to eat truma. And therefore, the Gemara, the Gemara basically is saying is that it can never be. You can never be a reason why somebody else can eat truma if you can't eat truma. And the Gemara is expressing this now as a general rule. You can't be the catalyst for another human being to eat truma if you yourself can't eat truma. Says the Gemara, that's not a true rule. Velo, is that true? Think about any uncircumcised coin, any arrow, right? So he himself can't eat truma. An uncircumcised coin can't eat truma. Or a coin who's tummy. The tummy coin can't eat truma. All these people are forbidden to eat. But let's say they have a wife. Could the wife eat truma? 100%. 100%. He's a Kohen, right? He just because he can't eat, there's no law that his wife can't eat. So what do I see? I see that that rule is not true. There's no rule that you can't be the reason for another human being to eat truma if you can't eat truma. It's not true. If a Kohen is an Aro of an Aro, a Kohen is a Tameh, he can't eat truma and his wife does. So I see that that rule is just simply not true. Says the Gemara, There, the mouth is giving them pain. What does that mean? The Gemara is saying, that's an external issue. That means the Kahuna power allows them to eat. There's an external issue which holds them back. They're uncircumcised, they're tame, so it's as if their mouth can't open. So okay, if your mouth can't open, you're not gonna eat truma, but you could eat truma. So there, Mashenkin over here, where it's a, a widow who's, who's married to the Kohen, she becomes a halala, she's permanently, she's intrinsically disqualified from eating truma. She, there, she's someone who cannot eat truma, and therefore she cannot entitle other people to eat truma. Says the Gemara, but still the rule is not true. There's a case of a mamzer, who is a grandson of a Kohen, descendant of a Kohen, who cannot eat Shrema himself and entitles other people to eat Shrema. So what's this case of the mamzer? It's a case like this. You have a daughter. So, so let's, let's just make sure we have clear what originally is. You have to get the, the generations here. A non-Kohen marries a Kohen. So what's the law? So normally she eats Shrema while she's married to the Kohen. What happens if the Kohen dies? So the law is that if she still has children from the Kohen, she could eat Shrema. That's the rule. So normally, children that she'd have from a coin would be a coin, so you can understand it. But what if, let's make this a little bit, a little, a little bit wild, is where the child married a mamzer. Okay, so maybe there was a daughter or something and she married a mamzer. So the kid, the grandchild, is gonna be a mamzer, not a, maybe not a coin at all. But Lamaisa, there's lineage, there's a descendant from a coin. So even if everybody else died, but this one mamzer grandchild, grandmother, can still eat truma. Why? Because she was once married to a Kohen and there's still, there's still remnants from that uh, relationship. So even though the kids are moms are nothing at all, she could still eat. So what do I see? You don't have to be able to have the power to eat truma to feed somebody else truma. He, he is entitling his grandmother to eat truma. So the Gemara says, I'm Ravina, no, 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 no. Let me revise my rule that I was making that someone doesn't eat truma, then they don't entitle other people. I'm Ravina, I was talking about the acquisition of a coin. Remember, we were talking about the case where a coin had an acquisition that the acquisition who had an acquisition can eat truma. So the Gemara is saying, my rule that if you don't eat, then, then, then you can't feed was only going on the din of a coin's acquisition. There, so the widow 
who, who, who bought a slave, where the only way this slave would eat would, would be out the halach of kinyan or shekana kinyan. There we say, if the kinyan itself can't eat, so then the kana shekana kinyan can't eat. Masha'enki in the law, that if there's any remnants from the relationship with the Kohen, there are children from the Kohen, so then the, 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 the widow from the Kohen can eat. So that's true, even if that child is not someone who could eat shema. So basically what we're answering is, there's a new rule in Kenyan Shekana Kenyan. The rule of Kenyan Shekana Kenyan is only when the Kenyan himself can eat, then the Kenyan Shekana Kenyan can eat. Says the Gemara, another explanation. Why, again, what are we coming to answer? We're coming to answer why is it that just because it's a forbidden relationship, a widow to a Kohen Gadol, why are we saying that her slaves can eat Shema? I know she can't eat Shema, she becomes a Halala, but let her slaves eat Shema because of the din of an acquisition that acquired an acquisition. So the first approach of the Gemara is no. If, they, if the Kenyan her, herself can't eat, so then the, the, the acquisition's acquisition cannot eat. Says the Gemara's second explanation, Rav you're right, by Torah law, her slaves would eat Shema. It's only a rabbinic law. That she should say, it's like a mentality. Any inachas, I'm not eating truma. I'm clearly not considered so much legally to be the Kohen's wife. Avada and my slaves are also not eating truma. So basically, there's no ramifications in my marriage. Zoni So basically, I'm just like a harlot. That's basically what I am. She thinks to herself, If she thinks of herself like a harlot, it's going to lead to contention, to fighting, and he'll end up in divorce, which is great. You know why it's great? Because it's a forbidden relationship. That's really what we want. So we do everything in our power halachically to cause fighting. Isn't that interesting? So normally, right, shalom, bias, all that. But here, it's Alman al Kohen Gadol. So we want, the, we want her, this widow in the relationship, the widow marrying the Kohen Gadol, to think of herself like a harlot. That's what we want. So therefore, we don't give any binding benefits from the relationship. And that's why her slaves cannot eat Shema. Interesting, Allah. Now the Gemara gives a third explanation. We're concerned that if, if again, by Torah law, the slaves could eat Truma, but the rabbis offered it because if she continues to feed them Truma after the husband's death, after she, she might come to continue to feed them Truma after her husband dies. She can only feed them Truma during the marriage when it's Kenyan Shekhanah Kenyan. But we're scared that she's in the habit of giving them Truma and she might continue to give them Truma even after the husband dies. So, so we're concerned for that and therefore we say she shouldn't feed them Truma she shouldn't feed them, feed them truma even while the Kohen is alive. Again, let's just clarify. Normally, you don't say that. Everyone understands, you know, a Kohen slave only eats when, when, when he's the Kohen slave. But here the point is, it, it's the asset's asset, right? It's the wife's slaves who are eating. So it's really the wife's slaves. So the, the wife's slaves are in the habit of eating. They might not realize they're only eating because the wife was married to a Kohen. So they might continue to eat even after the marriage ends when it's forbidden. Says the Gemara, if there's really such a concern, so even a regular Yisrael's daughter who's married to a Kohen, she should never be able to feed her Malog slaves because she might feed them Misa. Meaning, basically, what we're saying is, so then what does that have to do with our case of Amman al-Kohen Gadol? Every single case, even a kosher marriage of a Bas Yisrael to a Kohen, her slave should never eat Truma because she might continue to feed them after the death of the Kohen. So, Allah, Amar Avashi, Ba'amana Kohanis. The decree was directed specifically if it was a Kohanis. It was a Kohanis who was widowed and then married a Kohen Gadol. And why would she specifically come to feed her slaves Truma more, more so than a regular girl? She can justify herself. Why? Because when you were a Kohanis, originally before she was ever widowed or anything, she was eating Truma by her father's house. She had slaves. They were also eating when she was originally under her father's house. When I married the Kohen Gadol, and then they were eating my, 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 my husband's Truma. So she thinks, now that I'm widowed from the Kohen Gadol, let me go back to my original status, and my slaves can eat my father. 
father's truma because that's the way it used to be. For Loyada, she doesn't realize this. She's making a mistake to marry Kalala. She's an Afshik Halala. Originally, before she did the wrong thing and married the Kohen Kalala, she wasn't a Halala. So she was, she, she was someone who was entitled to eat her father's truma and therefore her slaves also could. But Ashish Shavisa and Afshik Halala, once she married, that she did the Isra and she married the Kohen Kalala and she made herself a Halala and she's unfit to eat truma. So now she's not allowed to go back to her daddy's home and eat truma. Once she became a Halala, she's permanently disqualified from, from truma even, even if she's living with her father. So therefore, it's forbidden for her to feed her slave Shema originally. But again, we can understand why she'd make a mistake. Her mistake is, I'm a Kohanist. I, was, I grew up in my dad's home and I fed, I fed my slave Shema. Now I married a, 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 a Kohen Gadol and while I was married, I was feeding my slave Shema. Now that I'm divorced from the Kohen, but now I'm divorced or, or, or widowed again from the Kohen Gadol, let me go back to dad, daddy's house and feed my slave Shema. The answer is, now you can't. Now you're halala permanently disqualified and your slaves also can't. She might not make them, she might, she might not get that. She might make the mistake to give them Shema afterwards. Therefore, we say, even while she is married to the Kohen, where technically he has, they have the right, the slaves have the right to eat Shema because of the din of an acquisition that bought an acquisition, we still say no, that they, they, they cannot do it mid So we come out with three, and let me just finish the next line of the Gemara, so that decree makes sense for a widow Kohanis who has that justification to say to herself, what about a regular Bas Yisrael who, who, who is the Amana Kohen Gala? She would have no justification. No mistake would ever be made for her to keep on feeding her truma, her kid, her slave's truma after the Kohen Gala's death. So why do we offer her slaves from eating truma now? So the Gemara answers, and the Rabbanan were not machalic between widows. They didn't make any different, they didn't differentiate. They said, look, whenever you have any widow who's illegally married to the Kohen Gala, we don't let their slaves eat to protect the case where it's in a Kohanis. In other words, in the Kohanis scenario, there's reasons for her to, to, to justify it. And therefore, we all have to protect that case. So how did the rabbis legislate? The rabbis didn't just say, an Almada Kohanis can't feed, who married a Kohen Gadol can't feed her slave Shema. They said, any Almada Kohen Gadol can't feed her slave Shema. So that's the, um, that's the, uh, the end of the Gemara. So bottom line is, we learned in the Mishnah that generally, when a kosher marriage takes place, or, or a Kohen buys a slave, there's a law, acquisition, who gets an acquisition, can eat a truma. However, when it was avde, when it was, when it was a forbidden relationship between an almana and a Kohen Gadol, and what is the law? When almana marries a Kohen Gadol, what's the law? The slaves do not eat truma. Now, what is the reason for this? Let's still speak Kenyan. So we came up with three things. One approach is that it's been derived. So the din of Kenyan is only if the Kenyan himself can eat, so then it passes out. If the Kenyan can't eat, not. The other two approaches that is the Rabbanans. Is the Rabbanans either that she should think of herself like a harlot and it will lead to the divorce or to protect the case of where a mistake could be made if it was a Kohanis who had Avimilog were concerned that after the marriage would end, she'd take her back to the father, she'd take her slaves back to her father's house and eat Shuma, so we protect that case. All right, now the Gemara, we've been talking about Son Barzo. Remember, what's Son Barzo? She brings in a dowry and the husband is accepting the ironclad responsibility. What do we mean ironclad responsibility? This asset, I will pay back its value at the end of the marriage, regardless of the appreciation or depreciation. So itmar, a woman brought in marriage. They evaluated the property, it's own buyers, oh, now the marriage is ending. So he has to pay back the value that it was worth at the time of the marriage. Now he owe marriage, she says, I want to take my clea back. So meaning, you know what she says? She says, whatever, I don't know, she, she brought in whatever clea it was. She brought in a treadmill into the marriage as part of her dowry. She wants the treadmill itself. The he or who Omer, you know what he says? He says, you know what? Let me keep the treadmill. I'll keep the clee and I'll pay, I'll pay, I'll give you money. I'll give you the value that it was worth. And then we brought it to the marriage. And why is that? Maybe there's a shortage of treadmills, right? Maybe there's a shortage. There's a supply, there's an issue in China, whatever. There's not enough treadmills. So they both want to keep the asset. They both want to keep the asset itself. 
I didn't mean who does the law go with? Does the right have, does the wife have that right to demand back the actual property? Or then the husband say, look, I really the property became mine. I just have to pay you the value. Fascinating question. So the Gemara brings the machlokas. Review the Amar. I didn't eat law. Rabbi Yudah says the law is with her. She could demand that she wants the original property. The law is with him. He has the right to keep the property and just give her the original value. The Gemara explains what are the reasons for each. Rabbi Yudah says the law is with her. These properties, there's like pride. The, prize of a, the pride of her father's house. Meaning a dowry. What's a dowry? A dowry is something, even though we say you know, it's her asset, it was what daddy supplied her with. That's generally the idea. The dowry of it is the pride of her father's house. So therefore, since it was originally the wife's family's, it only makes sense. It's only fit that if she wants that actual asset back, that she has the right to take it. The husband can't say, I'm keeping it, I'm giving you money. Can't, there's no such thing. There's a pride in the kli itself. The law is with him because, look, it's his asset. What did we say in the Mishnah? Let's say the slaves died during the marriage, the, the, the depreciation, the losses to the husband. If there was an increase in value, the value goes to him. He only is paying back the value they were worth at the time of the marriage. Since the husband is alive for them, we even said in the Mishnah they could eat truma. And what was the vart? We were saying in the Mishnah, they're his slaves. That was what we assumed, that Hadin, that, that, that Tzon bars are considered the Kohen's asset. Even where the wife's not eating truma, let's say it was a man of the Kohen, but the other Tzon bars will eat truma. What's the vart? The vart is that they're the Kohen's asset. So what do I see? I see that Tzon bars means it's the Kohen's thing. It's his asset. So what the Gemara is saying is, once you guarantee the value, and that's the lumdus, once she brought in the dowry, I know it was her father's property, but if you bring it in the dowry and he's guaranteeing the value, he's responsible for the value, and then he's using it during the marriage, that means the achrayis, that responsibility makes that he's the owner of the asset. It's his thing. So if it's his thing, and now at the end of the marriage, and the question is who's going to keep it and what's going to be with the money, he absolutely has the right to keep it and pay her off. That's the point of the second opinion. Says the Gemara back, Amar Safra, Mikdani Vainshalo. Did the Mishnah say that they belong to him? Did the Mishnah say the slaves eat because in the law of asset they are the coins thing? No, that's not what the Mishnah said. The Mishnah said, he's liable for them. He, since he has the responsibility for them, he has the right to feed them Truma. But they're not actually his. They actually belong to the, to the wife. So now the Gemara is saying a really heavy point here. Let's get this clear. On the one hand, the Mishnah says that Avdisom Barz will eat Truma even when the wife's a halal and she can't feed her slave Truma. Avdisom Barz will eat. Obviously, we see that they're very connected to the husband. So the Gemara was trying to say, it must be we see they belong to him. They belong. It's his thing. Says the Gemara, no, no, no. There's a chivachrayas. There's a responsibility for them. And out the chivachrayas, he has the right to feed them, to, to, feed, to feed those slaves Truma. But in terms of Actual ownership, like this belongs to me, belong, 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 to the extent that when the marriage ends, he has the right to say, I'm keeping it and giving you money. No, the mission never said such a thing. There could be still halach, at the end of the marriage, if she wants it, she could keep it. And what you really see here in the Gemara, and this is the bigger Chiddush, and this is what the Gemara is going to move on to, that even if I don't really own something, but if I have total responsibility for it, if I have to guarantee its value, then that means that halachically I can feed a trauma. Because that chivachrayas makes as if it's mine. The actual ownership is still the wife's. But the fact that I'm a chrayak, I have the total responsibility for this thing, I have a right to feed the truma because of that. 
Says the Gemara, Lamar challenges that rule. Again, to defend that it's not really his, it's hers, we have to say that the reason the Mishnah said that uh, he's feeding Truma is al Says the Gemara, is that true? If the Kohen doesn't actually own it, but he just has responsibility for it, is that true that the, that the Kohen could feed a Truma? We learned in a Mishnah, let's say you have Israel, a non-Kohen, who rents a cow from a Kohen. Now, another law is that you could feed, a Kohen can feed his animal, Truma. That's one of the rights of a Kohen, to feed his animal truma. So here, a Yisrael is renting a cow from a Kohen. Very interesting halach. He could feed the cow, the Karshinim. Karshinim are some sort of like nasty vegetables that only cows eat. He could feed it the Karshinim of truma. What's the vart? Because the, the, the rental doesn't mean that it's acquired by the renter. When you rent something, who does it really belong to? It really still belongs to the Kohen, the renter. Not the, the real owner, not the person using it. So it still remains the legal property of the coin. He could eat Shrima. Very interesting halacha. However, the opposite. Let's say a coin rents a cow from Israel. Even though he has to give the cow food, right? That's the assumed, that's the assumed thing. If you rent a cow, you're the one who has to feed it during the rent. During the during the term the, the term of the rental, even though the kohen has to feed it, he can't feed it the karshinim of truma. What's the reason? Because he's not the owner; it's not the kohen's animal. He's just renting it. So when in the ratio when the Israel rented it from the kohen, it's really considered a kohen's animal, so the Israel can feed it truma. But in the seifa where the kohen rented it from Israel, he can't feed it truma. Now, who's responsible? When you, who has a chrys? Not who owns it. Not who owns it. I understand the owner is the owner, but when you rent something, you're responsible. Why? Because if it gets lost or stolen, what's the law? If you're a renter, you have to pay. So presumably there's achrayas, and the Kohen is responsible. Still, what's the Mishnah saying? That he cannot feed a truma. So what do I see? That the ability to, to feed truma is not based on responsibility, but rather on ownership. So now, going back to our Mishnah, if the Mishnah said that the, the Kohen can feed the Avdison Barzal Truma, what do I see? It must be he owns the Avdison Barzal. Can't be because of the, it can't be just because of the responsibility. Says the Gemara, no, Vatizbra, you think you're making sense? You think a renter is really responsible? A renter is liable for theft or loss. But the Onse, if an onus happens, an onus means something against like the possibility to protect from an unavoidable loss happens. Or let's say we're weakened or lost value naturally. Is a renter liable? He's not. A renter is liable only if he was negligent on some sort, on some way. So therefore, it's only a partial responsibility. Partial responsibility, you're right. That doesn't give you a right to eat trimmer. Whereas by us, even if it doesn't belong to the coin, but it's total responsibility. If a fluke accident happened, if the, you know, the slave was struck by lightning, this, the coin's still going to have to pay back the value at the end of the marriage. So that's full responsibility. So therefore, we could tie that it's ki'ilu, he has an ownership, even though he doesn't own it. So really now, let's go back. Let's go back. Really, what we said in the Mishnah was right, that, he, that since he has a chiva Christ, he can feed them truma even if he doesn't own it. And, 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 and I, a renter, cannot feed, cannot feed a, a, a coin renting a cow, cannot feed a truma. The answer is a renter is not considered totally achrai. And the Gemara supports this by saying, in this case, our Mishnah is really comparable to the Seifa of that Mishnah. Look at the end of that Mishnah. The Mishnah goes on to say, Let's say Yisrael is Shom. Shom means he evaluates the value, meaning when he was renting it, he took upon himself total responsibility. Whatever the value was at the time of the rent, he's going he's gonna to pay back. Then, he cannot feed it. Um, he cannot feed it. Trima. 
Because now it's like the Yisraels, right? Even though it was really essentially a coin thing. But once the Yisrael is Shom, he has total responsibility upon himself. So then he takes away uh, his ability to give it to him. In the inverse, if a coin was Shom, the cow, when he was renting it from the Yisrael, he could. What's the Vard? The Vard is that that's the difference. When you're just renting, it's only partial responsibility. But here, where it's total responsibility, then it's key. Either there's like some sort of uh, temporary ownership on this type of thing. So let me clarify what's coming out. We have a machlokes in front of us. In general machlokes, nothing to do with Shema, about when a woman brings an asset to a dowry and the husband accepts it as sown barzel, that ironclad arrangement. What is happening is that whatever the value is, the, coin's, the, the husband's going to have to pay it at the end of the marriage, whatever it was worth at the time of the marriage. That's clear. So who does the asset belong to during the time of marriage and end afterwards? And again, where it comes to where a fight is where at the end, each one wants to keep it. So there's a machlokes. One way of looking at it is that the husband, if he has total responsibility, really means it's his. The other way of looking at it is, no, he's totally responsible for the value, but afterwards, at the end of the marriage, it would go back to the wife. That's the question. And we tried to bring a proof from our Mishnah because the Mishnah says that the, the Tzon Barzal slaves, when it's a widow to a Kohen, the Nuchzit the, Tzon Barzal can eat Shema. Evidently, it seems like it belongs to the husband. And the Gemara the flesh doesn't belong to the husband. It could be that Achiva Chirayas, the fact that there's full responsibility, that's enough for it to go to the husband. And the lum this is, Achiva Chirayas is like, I would use these words, maybe this is part of it, like a temporary ownership. Of course, when the marriage ends, it's going to go back to the wife. He the Kohen never became the full, sole owner of it. But while he has the Achiva Chirayas, that is a din as if it belongs to him. But that doesn't shed light on what would happen if at the end of the marriage, they both want to keep the asset. Says the Gemara, Rav Rav Yosef were sitting at the, at the end of the Shira of Nachman. We asked for the they were sitting and saying, We have a price that goes like Rav Yehuda, that Tzon Barzo property is really the wife, the wife's, and another price that goes like Rav Ami, that the Tzon Barzo property is really the husband's. And sometimes you have that. Different prices will be conflicting. The price that goes like Rav Ami, Remember the din of Shane Vayan, Parshas Mishpatim? If a slave, if a master knocks off, knocks out the tooth or eye of his slave, what's the law? The slave goes free. So if you have a Tzon Barzo slave, what happens? Who's the owner? Right? If the, is, does it depend if the husband knocked out the, 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 the tooth or the eye, or does it depend if the wife did? So the prize says it depends on the husband. If the husband knocked out a tooth or an eye, the slave goes free. If the wife, then it doesn't. So what's the var? The owner is what causes knocking out the, 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 the tooth or the eye to go free. So we seem like we're saying that the owner is the husband. It must be that Son Barzo, the owner of it, is considered to be the husband and not the wife. So that's like Rav Ami, that, that the husband doesn't have to return the Son Barzo slave themselves. They become entirely like his property. Says the Gemara, the second price. So now it's not your wife's refuted. The other price that was mashma like refuted that it's really the wife's property. The woman who brings in the evaluated property for her husband. Certainly the Baal cannot sell it. He's not allowed to make a sale on it. Interesting thing. You know, he has to guarantee that his wife could retain the asset if there would be a divorce. So you want to use it, use it. But to make a sale on it, you're not allowed to. Oh, not only you're not allowed to sell it. Even if the husband brought in something for his wife. Imagine that, you know, the opposite. The husband brings in something for them to share. He cannot sell it. No, this is like a gift that a husband is giving to the wife. He's classifying it with its own bar. So even though it came from him, he's not allowed to sell. 
So let's say they both really needed it. Maybe, maybe, maybe. So maybe they sold it. So what happens? It's a story where it happened. The husband can remove the property from the purchasers. Meaning that, that in this case, it's so wrong. The, law, the sale never went through that the one who made the sale, the husband can go to the one who purchased it and said, I'm sorry, the sale that I sold was bogus. It didn't really belong to me. I can't sell it. So what do I see from here? I see from here that when they're so embarrassed, the husband can, doesn't have the right to sell. What's the vard? What's the vard? That he has to protect the right of ownership of the wife. Must be, it can go back to the wife at the end of the marriage. And that's why he doesn't have the right to sell. And it's a proof, like, like Rabbi Yehuda, that so and Barzo really primarily belong to the wife. Got a question? Okay. <clears throat> Says the Gemara now, that so and Barzo properties have to go back to the wife. That even though the husband has total acrias, but again, it's only like a temporary ownership, they have to go back to the wife. Says the Gemara, remember we had the bride like Ravami, right? So the Gemara says back, you could have a bride like Ravami. But Rav Yehuda's reasoning was so much more logical, right? Which is what? That the, the, the svara, the prestige of the father's house, that she, it should remain with her. That was such a good svara. The point was, is that she brought in something in the dowry. It's really fundamentally hers. It should make sense that it should go back to her at the end of the marriage. Now, the Gemara, but again, we're still ruling that, that, that he keeps. All right, now the Gemara tells us an interesting thing, an interesting story here. Aiyah said so there was a woman, it's the love of the milk to She brought her husband this fine woolen coat, this beautiful coat, as part of her dowry. And again, the husband can use it, and it seemed that he accepted it upon himself as sown by her. So he's going to pay back the, iron, the ironclad thing, he's going to pay back its value at the time of the marriage. So Shach of the husband died. What happens was the, the orphans, they took the coat and they covered the corpse with it. Now, that doesn't mean they covered the corpse. It wasn't Stam covered his body. They were going to make it the shrouds. Now, shrouds, the halacha is very important halacha. Shrouds, when you cover, uh, when you bury a body in whatever garment you put it in, they like, become attached to the status of the dead body. They become forbidden in benefit. And that's the law. That amazes us. Halachically, you're not allowed to benefit from a dead body. This is one of the things where Jewish law sees the value of kavod hamez very differently than the secular world. One of the things is that the maze Azbana can treat that body like extremely sacred, can't use it, no benefit, no donation, like all those things. Bury, only bury. And, and the same thing for, all, for the, anything you bury them in. All that clothing becomes part, attached with the maze, becomes forbidden Bana. So here, this is unbelievable. Why is this unbelievable? Because this coat, once the husband died, really was the wife's family, right? She brought her as her dowry. Really, the coat should go back to her. Should go back to her. But what happened, especially according to Rav Yehuda, but what happened here, what happened is that the orphans quickly took the coat right away and they, they, they put it on the body. Like, this is the shroud. So, Amarava, Kanya Misna. By once they put it on, the corpse acquired it. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean it belongs to the dead person. What it means is that once it was put on, then the garment can't be used for anything else. Once it became, this is the shroud, this is the shroud. Now, that's a big chiddish. Why? Because it was in, in halachically supposed to go back to the wife. Right? She has the right to go collect it back for herself. But before she went and collected it, it went on to the dead body. And now we're saying it becomes established as the state that it's forbidden in Hana and it can't go back. So the Gemara says, why? It's the property of the wife. Meaning, if you would say that stone bars are really the property of the husband and the woman doesn't have the right to demand it back, the husband can always pay her off. So then you understand it's not really hers. She doesn't, it's not true. She has the right to collect it. She has the right to the value. But if the cloak was put onto the dead body, we understand. So that the cloak itself, for what it is, becomes the shrouds of the mace, and therefore it's forbidden benefit. The wife, the wife is allowed money. No, no more. But if the halach is like reviewed, it's her asset. She has the right to collect it. She has the right to collect it. So then why is it becoming the, the, shroud, the shrouds of the dead body? And now she should just say, hey, that's mine. Let me take it. 
Says the Gemara Malay, even Rav Yudah, he agrees that it needs to be collected, meaning it's not automatically reverting to her thing. She has to collect upon it. And again, this is alumnus. The husband is responsible for it. Temporarily, it was like his while he was married. According to Rav Yudah, she has the right to take it away afterwards, to collect it. But it's missing still the collection, meaning she has to go seize the asset. And since still right now, it's still lacking the collection, meaning she hasn't collected on yet. Once the orphans put it on there, it's still considered somewhat in the husband's possession. To now, what the, the, the Yarshim can do is that the, the, the Yarshim have the right to establish it as being an also thing by putting it upon the corpse. I, once you do that, she can no longer collect from it. So be it. So be it. And that's, the, that's what's amazing. This halacha is that something I'm entitled to, but I don't yet have, meaning it's an asset I have the right to collect from. But it's not yet lemaisa in my possession. The wife has the right to collect on the asset, but it's not yet hers yet. So if the Yarshim designated as the shroud of the mace, then it will become chalas asabahana, and that will now preclude the wife from collecting back. Hektish, if someone consecrates something, chametz, if it becomes chametz on Pesach, v'shechor, or free something, mafkim yeshiba could take away from a lien. So meaning, mamish this point. Let's say someone has a lien on something. What's a lien? I have the right to collect. It's not my asset, but I have the right to collect from it. If before I collected from it, some guy made it hectish, it became Chametz on Pesach, or he was a slave, and somebody freed the slave, that takes away my lien. It's an amazing thing, because the he- the, the th- these actions that happen to it, that make it Asr Bahana, or for me to get it, those things are binding, and therefore they take away my shibud. Unbelievable. So, so to hear, even though the wife has a right to collect it, she does have the right, the right to collect it. But Lamai says she didn't collect on it yet. So she didn't collect on it yet. Once the Yarshim go and they designate it as the shrouds and it's becoming Asr Bahana, that now just takes away her right to collect. So if it would be something that mamish belongs to you, completely belongs to you, it's already yours. If you take my coat out of my closet and you put it on a dead body, it doesn't mean come Asr Bahana. That's my coat. You can't take my coat and put it on there and make it the shrouds. That's mine. But here what the Gemara is saying, the piercing lambdas, is that let it be that the wife has the right to collect the coat itself. But she has the right to collect it. She has to go seize it. Before she has made that collection, Technically, in property, it's still considered the Arshim's right to do what they want. And once they make that now, it is the shrouds of the mace, and it becomes also ba'ana. That's mafkia from the right to collect. Unbelievable halacha. And that's what we conclude with. So bottom line is, we have a machlokis, how to view nechzeton barzel at the end. Is it if they both, if the husband wants to keep it and pay her off, who is who's the halacha like? And what that really is, is part of a bigger abstract concept for us. What happens with nechzeton barzel? Is it temporarily the husband's, but then at the end it has to go back to the wife? Or is it really the husband's? He could just give money. That's really the question. And that's the ends in dispute in the Gemara, different ways of looking at it. Either way, the husband can feed Truma during the time because he's a chiv achrayas. It's temporarily as if it's his own. That's for sure. But we see different nafkaminos at the end, how to look at it. And one of these things is, the really tricky one is where the Yarshim went and put the cloak on the body, on the, on the corpse.